Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we're on this topic of uh, politics of the mind. What is that really all about? We had a definition last week uh, about, you know, what some people think politics is. And uh, there's actually a lot of those definitions floating around. And one of the other definitions, if you Google it, Google always has another definition. (laughs) So it says the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area. Now, I just read that, and of course, immediately you're already filling in a lot of the gaps in your own mind. And this is one of the things that goes on, is that you already have a preconceived notion. So when I say the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, you filled in what you think that means activities. Those activities can be over a wide range of different kinds of activities. I mean, like in the United States, we have a two-party system. And you have basically, uh, they say we have a two-party system. There's actually more than two parties. But basically, your choice most of the time is between the Republican and and Democratic Party. There's been third parties like the Bull Moose Party. and, uh, And, of course, there's the Green Party and the Constitutional Party and the Libertarian Party. And all these guys seem to do is just split the votes. I mean, that's how you got Woodrow Wilson into power is because Theodore Roosevelt ran on the Bull Moose Party. And uh, he split the vote uh, enough so that the, the least popular of the three people running uh, was elected, which was uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson, who brought in all kinds of things <laughs> that... Uh, would not have come into being in the United States, and many of them are still around, like the United Nations, because Woodrow Wilson got into power. And he got into power because the third party split the vote. He would not have been elected had not that third party uh, tried to win the election. And of course, so all your additional parties now actually... Uh, probably decreased the amount of votes and could have caused a different candidate to win. Those are the activities of a democracy and even an indirect democracy is that they have parties and, and they're getting people to vote and it's the voice of the people. And, and, you know, the first place I found that word, the voice of the people in the earliest literature is in the Bible where it talks about the voice of the people wanted a king, wanted a ruler, wanted a prime minister, president, somebody who could exercise authority. A chief executive officer, that's what a king is. And uh they wanted one in Israel, and that was called a rejection of God. But the voice of the people got a king. And uh, the king went along and got away doing pretty good things for a while, but then he did a terrible, terrible, terrible evil thing, according to Samuel which was he forced a sacrifice. And I, I find almost nobody who uh, uh, looks at the original Hebrew or the translations that we get in the King James Bible makes it clear what that means to force a sacrifice. But to force a sacrifice was to tax the people. 
and say, you have to pay in to this notable or worthy project. And uh, the project at that time was to build the defenses because they feared the, the Philistines attacking. This uh, idea of a uh, taxation was condemned by Samuel, forcing the sacrifice of the people so that he could build his army. And it's very clear once you understand, once I say it in those terms, and then you go back and read the original text, and it's, well, of course, that's what he was doing. He feared that he had to get ready for the Philistines because they were mounting an army and he needed to fund his army and he forced a sacrifice. He didn't go out there and kill a sheep and burn it up on a pile of stones. He forced the people to pay in to the service of the military. This was one a violation of one of the five precepts that you were to write down if you if you were in Israel, it tells you this in Deuteronomy 17, there are five things that you had to write down to make sure your leader did not do. And one is to accumulate gold and silver. In other words, force offerings. And he wasn't to do that. Well, how how can you have a government that doesn't have taxation? Well, of course, Israel did for 400 years. They had tithing, but they had no taxation. And you tithe to the individual Levite of your choice according to his service. I'm quoting here. Quote, according to his service. He does a good job, you give him more. If he's not doing a good job, you give to somebody else. And somebody told me once that the tithing was mandatory. Well, God said to tithe through Moses. And so it was mandatory. But what if you didn't tithe? Was somebody going to arrest you and throw you in jail? Uh, fine you? So it was mandatory, but you know, coveting your neighbor's goods, you know, not coveting your neighbor's goods is mandatory rule too of God. <laughs> and nobody seems to have any problem doing that. They all covet their neighbor's goods because they want to force their neighbor to contribute to their special project, whether it's the Philistines or the Russians or, you know, the Syrians or whatever, that they force you to contribute. And then they have the money for their army. And I've pointed out before, you know, stories like they needed ambulances during World War II, or during World War One. they needed ambulances that were mechanical ambulances because before they had horse-drawn wagons to bring the people back from the front lines and now they had the automobile. And so they wanted to have these mechanical ambulances and they're going to need drivers and they supplied what was it 2,000 ambulances and uh, they supplied them with donations from the people free donations not only the ambulances but the drivers uh, were paid for by donations from the people in the military I mean this was your mash group <laughs> what's going out there uh, of course they had uh Military doctors. My grandfather was a military doctor during World War One, uh, but uh, the ambulance drivers and the ambulances were provided by donations from the people. I mean, that's just unheard of uh, today. We don't even think in those terms because we are subject to the politics of the mind. And so we don't realize the activities associated with governance in World War One was charity 
they they gave donations to provide ambulances and ambulance drivers for the uh, soldiers. That was the activity then. That's unheard of now. We don't think in those terms. I mean, it's it's difficult enough to get charity to help those veterans who come back and are, you know, that there's all kinds of programs now that are starting to help veterans who, you know, were uh, received injuries, uh, psychological or physical injuries. And, uh, you know, they talk about the number of vets living on the street and that are homeless and all this stuff. Um we don't, most people don't think that's their responsibility. Well, that's what the government does. Well, the government's only going to provide what it takes away from your neighbor. That's a different kind of activity than was in Israel in the days of Moses. In the, in the first 400 years, they took care of the needy through free will offerings given to men they thought was, were doing a good job. And that was the that was the politics of Israel, and it took the politics of the mind to think that that was a good idea and to implement those ideas. We've gotten away from that. Something has changed our thinking. So when I say the activities associated with governance, you think of taxation. You think of uh, tax collectors and men who exercise authority, forcing the contribution and legislatures saying, oh, now you're going to have to pay this much and now you only get this much because you think that's the activities of governance. But the activities of governance could be charity, could be free will offerings in a network of public servants of your choice. On an individual basis, not a party basis. See, you, you know, in England, if you, if, if a particular party wins the election, they form a whole new government. There's a huge turnover. And, uh, you know, they have to go to the king and ask permission to form a government and he will ask you to form a government for him and then you go and, you know, go see the new movie about Winston Churchill and you see the process of, and they have to go out and form a government. Now, they don't, they don't go and change the congressman or the parliament, uh, but they change the guys who are actually on the ground doing this, that, and the other thing. There's another bureaucracy that remains in place with each administration. But uh, we see the same thing in the United States. Uh, you know, they're changing all their cabinets, uh, leaders, and then those cabinet leaders go back, and then they're changing uh, this, that, and the other thing in uh, the bureaucracy of government. Uh, they may stop, put a freeze on hiring like they did in the educational uh, section of the United States government. Um, and uh, they have this huge building with... It used to be full of all these employees, but now they're 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 disappearing because they're not hiring new ones, and so they're reorganizing uh, their whole government based on the policies brought in because a a Republican was elected, and so what they're really trying to do is return the control of education back to the states and not have it so federally mandated and controlled. And hopefully they'll return the money that they took federally (laughs) back to the states so that the states can implement their own programs. And that would be an activity of that government. So how do you, how would you handle education 
in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, there is no forced taxation. There's only tithing. There's only charity. There's free will offerings. That's what they said in the Old Testament, free will offerings. They don't say the word charity, but that's what charity is, is a free will offering. So those are the activities of that government. And the the church is considered one form of government. That That's the way it's defined in, in Black's Law Dictionary. So if you have a government that's operating on charity, those are different activities than a government that's operating on forced contributions, which we call taxation. So if we go back to that definition of politics, politics in the kingdom of God, the activities are much different than the activities in the kingdoms of the world. Because Jesus is, it was in the world, but he was not a part of the world. And that's what he told all those trainee ministers, that you were to be in the world, but not of the world. And the word world there was means, this is the definition, right in theirs, constitutional order or system of government. So Jesus was a king, but his kingdom was not a part of the world of Rome. It did not, the people who sought his kingdom could not depend for Rome for their free bread or their circuses or their benefits. They had to depend upon each other. So their activities in the early church and those those people seeking the kingdom of God was much different than the activities of those who were seeking the benefits of the world, the constitutional order of Rome. And, and once you start to see this in your own mind, and start I mean, if you were to close your eyes and try to picture, okay, Christians did not go down to the temples of Rome to get the free bread on Monday or Sunday. They gathered, they actually gathered on Sunday uh, because they had already had their day of rest on the Sabbath because they they kept the Sabbath. But they did gather on Sunday. We know they gathered on Sunday from the earliest church writings. Well, so did that mean that the Sabbath was moved to Sunday? No, it meant that Sunday was the first work day of the church of the week. And they gathered on Sunday to make sure the daily ministration was taken care of for that week. And so that's why they were gathering, is to do the job of the church. You gather on Sunday to go get a good feeling from some minister who's going to get up there and talk and tell you that you're saved, even though you're not doing what Christ said. But anyway, another subject. Let's go back to the activities of the kingdom of God took place at the beginning of the week on Sunday where they gathered together and those that had shared with those that did not have enough. And they shared uh, what they had with the president uh, at the meeting. That's the actual word that we see translated in the earliest writings, you know, 150 A.D. The president of the gathering. Uh which is probably the Principa Civitas. Uh, it would, I'd have to go back and look at the original Latin describing uh, that particular uh, event. But they said, you know, when you see the translations of the actual accounts written in 150 A.D. by Justin the Martyr, it was the president of these gatherings. Well, these were free assemblies. They weren't presidents. This is another activity that is different. The president of the United States is the chief executive order 
uh, officer. He's going to execute the laws that they establish in the legislature, which is Congress in the United States, Parliament, uh, you know, over in England or in Australia or Canada. But they make laws and uh, their chief executive officer is supposed to enforce those laws, execute those laws. Well, in the kingdom of God, the activities are much different because you're not, you can't make law because you're not sovereign in the kingdom of God. As all these people say, well, I'm sovereign. Well, no, God's sovereign in the kingdom of God. But how do you communicate with God? Well, in your heart and your mind. And he says, this is what I want you to do and you go out and do it. He leads you. And, and you walk with him along the still waters. Yeah, that, they're actually teaching you about meditation when they talk about, when, uh, David is talking about, he leadeth me beside the still waters. That's what, that's what meditation is. So when you sit down and you, you try to be still, you try to be quiet, and the rivers of your mind stop flowing. Uh, constantly and you just you sit still and you listen and you wait upon the Lord that's part of your prayer meditation you go off by yourself in your prayer closet and you be still and you see your mind racing about what this person said or what that person said or what this person did or what might happen tomorrow or what I got to do tonight and you all these feelings and emotions well up in your mind when you try to be still. But God leadeth you by side the still waters where he helps you still your mind and you listen to what God has to say. Instead of sitting there thinking you're praying by mumbling your desires over and over again in your mouth. Endless ceasing of words they talk about in the Bible. Not the way to go. But be still and know. So that's an activity of the kingdom of God. That's your your convocation with the Lord. It's when you sit down and you wait upon the Lord and you want to know what he has to say in your heart and in your mind. And then while you're doing that, you may have to let go of all the things that you want. It is a really poor prayer if you sit down and say, I want, I want, I want, I want. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. I need this. I need that. That's not what the prayer of the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, give me everything I want. I, I told the story recently about uh, somebody who posted a quote on the Bible, uh, you know, from the Bible, saying, if you will worship me, I will give you your heart's desire. Uh, everything you want. And everybody, and he asked if I could get an amen and people were Posting back on Facebook, yeah, amen, amen. He got like 78 amens on that. And then he announced that that's actually, he was quoting the Satan <laughs> in the Bible. Uh, that was uh, that was the words of Satan. Uh, that's not the words of God. Because that's not what he's offering you. God will give you what you need. But he may not give you what you want. And so... Your prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, Thy will be done. Not your will. It's not, that's, if you're, if you're sitting down praying for all the stuff you want, that is not the Our Father. That is not praying in like manner. 
your prayer should be, Lord, what is thy will? And so now, when you're saying that prayer in the kingdom of God, you can only pray that for you. You want to know what God wants you to do. See, in the kingdoms of the world, you go down the boat to decide what you want to make your neighbor do. <laughs> you know, I want my neighbor to pay for this or to pay for that. And uh I want this benefit and I want that benefit. Those are different activities than the activities of the kingdom of God. So the politics of the mind or the politics of the kingdom of God is about individual responsibility. About you sitting down and asking God what he wants you to do and then getting up and going out and doing it. It's not about forcing your neighbor to do this, that or the other thing. It's about faith. Faith in God speaking to you in your heart and in your mind. So the activities of the kingdom of God would be conducive to that approach where the individual is given the right to choose. It doesn't mean he doesn't come together with others. And that's another part of that same definition if I continue to read that. The first part is the activities associated with governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict amongst individuals or parties. Well, in the United States government, you have the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and they're in conflict with each other all the time. You know, everybody on this side of the aisle, they all vote this way, and everybody on this side of the aisle, they all vote that way. But in the kingdom of God, it's about individuals. The See, the power of the state in the kingdom of God is in the hands of the individuals. If there's not three branches of government, if there's 100,000 uh, families in the kingdom of God, or 144,000 families in the kingdom of God, there's 144,000 branches of government. Because each family is a branch of government. So the activities of each family is going to dictate the outcome of governance. Because they're going to say, oh, we need money for this. And everybody has to decide how much they want to give and who to whom they want to give it to, to see to it that it goes to this. They have to decide. that They are the legislature. That's a free society. Now, that's only going to work with virtuous people, and of course, in early days of America, when they wrote up the Constitution, which was an extremely unpopular document with the people, and had it been put to a vote, it would have been voted down. See, this is, again, the politics of the mind. Everybody's thinking, what makes our country great is the Constitution. You know, that it was divinely inspired. But the original Americans did not like the Constitution, didn't want to have anything to do with it, and did not vote it in. And did not need to vote it in, because it really had nothing to do with them, because they were not a party to it. But our minds have been altered, so we're thinking something different. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, so, uh, we're talking about this idea of politics, politics of the mind. The, the word mind, uh, in the, the Bible is sometimes translated, uh, into soul, and sometimes it's translated into mind. 
So there's some sort of synonymous reference to soul and mind. We talked uh, last week about uh, some of the uh, quotes like uh, Philippians. Only let your conversation as it becometh the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, that whether uh, I come and uh, see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Well, that word conversation there translated, if we look at the original Greek, is polytumai or polytume, which is uh, a middle voice derivative of uh, a word that actually means to be a citizen, uh, the administration of affairs, the management of the state. He wants to know that that's, that your administration of the state is in accordance with Christ and the gospel of Christ. And, uh, you know, I mean, that word polytumi is, is from the word, uh, polites, uh, which is translated citizen. And, uh, and, and appears in the Bible, you know, several times. Um, as citizen. So he's, he's saying he wants to know that your conversation, your, your administration of civil affairs, of the affairs of the state are in accordance with the gospel of Christ, which of course the gospel of Christ was the way. And the way was through faith, hope, and charity. That if you had a need, it had to be provided through charity. You know, if you have two coats and your neighbor has none, you're supposed to be sharing. You're not supposed to be forcing your neighbor to give over his coat so that you can be benefited. Because that would be coveting your neighbor's coat. So this is this is a different way. You know, the first place you see the word conversation in the Bible is way back in Psalms. Where it talks about, uh, it says, the wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. And what's the upright conversation? The word there that we see as conversation is the word derek, which is translated way, upright way, 590 times in the Bible. And it has to do with the path. It has to do with the activities. And so there are some who are using force. You know, their sword, they live by the sword. They live by force. They live by the bow. They live by this force. And they cast down the poor. They take from the poor. They take from uh, the people, uh, mostly from the middle class, and make them poor. In order to provide, you know, for the other, uh, the others of society. You know, they, they've gone this other way, this other pattern of activities. Christ said, no, you don't do it that way. You do it through charity. And once you begin to understand that, you can get a different view of the gospel. That once you understand the context of history, I mean, Rome was a republic originally. It wasn't a democracy. It was a republic. I mean, before it was a republic, it had kings. But it threw out the Tarquinian kings and established a republic. They created a senate that was elected to uh, the Hars and the equestrian 
community, which was a network of Romans. The Harsh gathered in small groups of 10 or 12 families, and then they gathered in larger and larger groups, and they created districts by these groups, and they elected the equestrian class that uh, united the whole uh, nation of Rome together, which was a really small area of, of Italy at the time. But it united all these different families and tribes, and they elected a senate. But the Senate was not even really a federation of these districts. It was just old men. And they would bring, they would come together and they would discuss what's happening and affecting all these different areas. And those different areas would have to help out one another. And things became centralized in Rome where people would go to Rome for these big festivals. And uh, their temples weren't buildings yet. They were just areas. And they would go to these areas and they'd have these big festivals and all these senators would get together and the different equestrian people would get together and know each other. Because if they were attacked again, like the Jutes came down from up north or whatever, they would have to defend. The whole community would have to come together to mass an army overnight. And the Teutons had the same ability. When the Romans were coming up there, they massed an army overnight. Uh, they, they knew they were coming and they got together and they put this whole army together to fight this legions and defeated the legions to the, to kill them all, wiped them out, drove them into the bogs and swamps and supposedly none of them survived. Although I, I imagine some did, but basically nobody really made it through. I mean, there are stories that some of them went out to other places. They didn't, they were too ashamed to go back to Rome because it was such an utter defeat. But the army was put together overnight. How come? Because the activities of their society were not based on a central government that was forcing taxation upon the people, but was based upon a network of charity. And we describe some of this in the book, Thy Kingdom Comes, how some of these charitable institutions work. And they work much like the Levites did. That with free will offerings given to these men who would rightly divide this, these offerings from house to house according to their need and provide a daily administration for the needy of their society, the widows, the orphans, the, the sick, the indigent of society in a way that strengthens them, not makes them dependent upon that. They try to get them so that they're independent of such charity, but occasionally people need help. That's just the way it is in society. That's the way it is in life. That sometimes people need help. And so these are different kind of activities. But if we go back to that definition that we just got off of Google uh, in this, uh, you know, I just searched just before I came on the air and and got this definition and uh, been reading from it bit by bit, piece by piece. And trying to figure out what it says in this um, uh, you know definition now, I just put that in here for some reason or other, I seem to have lost it <laughs> so, anyway, here it is uh uh it, it we had the first part, which is the activities associated with the governance of a country. 
And the second part of that is the, the, uh, the debate or conflict amongst individuals or parties. Well, in the kingdom of God, the debate is between the individuals because even though you might have a group of men that are supposedly at the top of government, they don't have any exercising authority. They don't, they're not legislating new laws. The laws are already established by God. Even the statutes of Moses is just Moses' attempt to explain the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, you know, you call them laws, but they're not laws like the world has. They don't say, you know, thou shalt, uh, you know, uh, not kill or we will prosecute you under this statute, that statute, and you will do so many years or you will do this or you will do that. If you steal, you get so many years in jail. There's none of that. It just says, thou shalt not steal. That's a bad thing. Thou shalt not covet. That's a bad thing. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a bad thing. But people didn't understand this brief summary of the principles of God's kingdom. So, Moses started making the statutes of Moses. And I point out, like the food laws, don't eat pork. Why Why can't you eat pork? What, what's wrong with that? Where does that fit under the Ten Commandments? What's he trying to describe when he, he says, don't eat pork? Don't even touch people who eat pork. Well, at that time, the pork was just, you know, infested with parasites that were entirely uh, disabling the people who ate a lot of pork, which were like the Canaanites. And uh, so that people were seldom living beyond 40 or 45. I mean, archaeologists have examined the graves and found the people were totally uh, debilitated by the the parasites that come from pork that's just running wild and picking up parasites and passing them on to all the other pork and passing them on to all the other people who eat pork and walk in animal feces and touch you just touch uh the feces of an animal that is infested with these parasites and you can get these parasites if you don't wash you don't bury your own feces all these things moses was requiring the people to do because it would be a violation of the ten commandments if you didn't do these because you would actually be killing your neighbor with these parasites you would be adulterating your body by eating the, these meats that were full of these parasites. And so he said, don't do that. He knew that the people would be contaminated by these, uh, so that he was saying, you can't even, you don't even want to touch somebody who's engaging in this. And the archaeologists today now excavating these areas where supposedly Israel came in and took over Canaan, uh, they're finding that there doesn't seem to be a war that overcame this the, the the community at that particular time. It appears that it was a peaceful transition, but all the pork bones disappeared from you know when they they're digging down and looking at the different layers. At one particular to- time, you couldn't find any more pork bones. It, you had them earlier, but then all of a sudden. Israel came and they disappeared. And it was important that it disappeared completely from the land. And how did it happen? Did they go out and kill all the pigs? No. What they did was they came with a superior culture, with superior activities associated with governance, with a superior kind of politics 
of the individual rather than parties and factions. With that superior system that the people look, well, these people are 60, 70, 80 years old and they're still healthy. We're bent over. We have mental issues. We have uh, all kinds of problems. Our our bellies are swollen, but we're hungry all the time. Why? Because you're infested with worms and parasites. And we want to we want to look like these people. We want to be like these people, these wealthy people with solid families that are taking care of one another, not divorcing left and right. We want to be like them. And they, so they, but they won't even talk to us because we raise pigs. So we get rid of the pigs. Now, of course, the power establishment in those communities wanted to fight Israel. And they were willing to fight if you want to attack us. But they, they did not come into Canaan and take over Canaan violently. They came in with this superior activities associated with the governance of individuals because the individuals were immersed in a life of virtue and caring. They couldn't oppress the the Canaanites in their midst. But they also wouldn't touch the Canaanites in their midst if they didn't reform their ways. So the Canaanites changed the way they thought for the most part. And there were holdouts, of course. It didn't. But that 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 degenerating activities that had brought this nation to such a poor state began to change and the people began to follow the ways of Israel. From the beginning, Israel was not simply the sons of Jacob. Thousands of Egyptians went out with uh, Moses. And so it's not a bloodline. People want to think that it is, but we know even at the time of David, there were other people who are not of the bloodline of Israel that were holding high office in the military. Because Israel was not a bloodline. It was a way. It was a way of living by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. Now, I'm not saying that Israel didn't get corrupted and decide, you know, because obviously they did. They rejected to be ruled over by God. And how did God rule over the people? Through their hearts and minds. You know, Jeremiah says this. I mean, Samuel's telling you that you are rejecting God by wanting to have this chief executive officer to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. And when your king actually does that and violates the five precepts that are in Deuteronomy 17 and begins to accumulate wealth by forcing sacrifices, you're going against God. You're rejecting God. And your your government will fail. So the the third part of this definition. So we've got activities associated, and the, we and you know we've gone over the different kinds of activities. One is activities of force and fear and violence, and the other one is faith and hope and charity. So you could just look at what are your activities consist of. Doesn't say anything about oh Christians go to church. No. Christians have different activities associated with governance. They take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. The activities of the world take care of one another through force, fear, and violence. Okay, the second thing was the debate or conflict amongst individuals or parties. Well, there is no parties. There's only individuals. What is the common denominator of Christianity? It's Christ. 
There's not 40,000 Christian denominations. There's one Christian denomination, and that is Christ. If you're not conforming to Christ, you're not a Christian. If you're not following Christ, you're not a Christian. You're just somebody who says they're a Christian. You're saying, Lord, Lord, but you're not doing the will of the Father. You actually have to be following the way to be a Christian. You can imagine that you're saved. You can imagine that you're born again. But that's just, you know, in your imagination. That's idolatry. You've created a doctrine and you worship that doctrine. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to follow and worship Christ. Uh, which is the anointing of God. So you're following God and and Christ uh, and the Holy Spirit, which are all the same. And I'm not going to get into the Trinity thing because that word doesn't appear in the Bible, but there's definitely this this nuance of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But uh, what that means, most of the people who talk about the Trinity haven't got a clue. And the reason you know they haven't got a clue is because you can take a look at their activities, which is what James says. Not what they say, but what they do. You know, I I heard a a bishop the other day discussing everything from uh, Thomas Aquinas to, uh, you know, the the activities of the church that he's a bishop for and all this stuff. But the very basics of living by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence... He never even would go into that area. He wouldn't even look at that topic. And that debate or conflict, what is the conflict of Christianity and Rome? Rome still wanted to take care of the needy through forced contributions and Christians wanted to do it through free will offerings. That was, that was why Christians were being, being persecuted. Now people made up all kinds of scenarios and, uh, and uh, rhetoric about, you know, Christians this and Christians that. But the reality, they were just jealous and envious. I mean, we see the same thing going on today amongst the debate amongst uh, liberals and conservatives, which is usually supposedly like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Although the distinction is not that clear. It's not. I'm not saying the Republicans are righteous, but the Democrats are just... Overtly saying, yes, we should take from our neighbor to provide benefits for the needy of society. And then who they put in the needy of society is everybody who votes for them. (laughs) But the conservatives are over there doing the same thing, but maybe on a, a smaller degree. But they're really still, their activities are still associated with, you know, forcing your neighbor. Because they still want public education. They still want social security. They still want all these other elements of socialism, but uh, for the for the most part, now again, the debate in the kingdom is not between parties; it's between individuals, and those individuals have no right. It's not a democracy. The kingdom of God is not a democracy, so you don't have a right to infringe upon the others' people's right to decide what is good and evil in their heart based upon either their own. De- based upon their own egotistical imagination or based upon God writing upon their hearts and their minds. And the ends uh, of their debate, who's winning the debate, will be uh, apparent by their activities. Uh, but anyway, the third part of that is having uh, or hoping 
to achieve power. So, do you come together seeking the kingdom of God because you want power? What power? Well, you know, they talk, you know, in Romans 13, it says, let every man be subject to the higher power. And they have the word power there. And that word power there is exousia. And if you look up exousia in the Greek dictionary or theirs or uh, even in the Strong's Concordance, exousia means the right to choose. So you come together seeking the kingdom of God so that you have the right to choose. But your choice must be in accordance with God the Father for you to be a part of the kingdom of God. If your right to choose is just based on what you want, then then that's not really the higher power. You're, you're, you're coming together out of selfishness. And your activities will manifest a selfish set of activities. It won't be the activities of the kingdom of God. It will be the activities of selfish people, unvirtuous people, who, you know, the, the foolish virgins. So you, you having that, having or hoping to achieve the right to choose. But in order for it to be the kingdom of God, the choice must be in accordance with the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes this really clear. He says, not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do with the will of the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. So this takes us back to that prayer. Are you sitting down and praying, oh, I want uh, uh, Stevie to have safe travels, and I want uh, uh, Jimmy to... Uh, get that new car that he needs uh, so he can get to work and I want uh, health for so and so not all these things you may want for somebody but really your prayer must be thy will be done that that's what you want you only want uh, Stevie to have safe travels according to the will of God you want uh, Jimmy to have a new car if that's what God wants you know and so you don't even need to mention the new car. You just have to be praying unceasingly to God to know and do His will and hope that Stevie and Jimmy also know and do the will of the Father. That That is your prayer. And if they know the will of the Father, you want them to have the power to choose to do the will of the Father, which means that you cannot be choosing for them. You cannot be making decisions for them. And see, when you're raising up your children when they're little, you make decisions for them. You have power and authority within the family to say, no, you can't. Uh, you know you may not. Yeah, that is not allowed. But as you raise those children up, you're not raising ch- uh, children up to be children. You're raising children up to be adults. So you want to give them the power of choice. So now, wouldn't you want that for your neighbor? So now we're going to talk a little bit when we get come back. How do you give the power of choice to your neighbor? And how do you take it away? And should you take it away? Uh, because it appears that, that taking it away would not be the activities of the government of God. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we're talking about the politics of the mind, how the mind has changed. Uh, and we talk about... You know, being born again, isn't that where your mind is changed? You're born again of the Spirit and you, your mind will be born again as well. And so you will think differently than 
the way you thought before. And that, of course, is what repentance is, is thinking differently. It's a changing of the mind. And uh, we see this, uh, we will have a different polity. Uh, you know, the this this word that polytuma, which we see translated conversation in another place in the Bible, it's translated live. And uh, both times it's uh, in reference to Paul. Uh, in Acts 23, 1, we see, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived. And there's that word, polytume, in all good conscience before God until this day. Well, again, that word that we see translated conversation in Philippians 1.27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And uh, and what we see in Acts 23.1, it's from the same uh, Greek word in both cases. And that that Greek word is that polytuma, which is the administration of civil affairs. It actually appears also as, well, polytumi and polytuma. Polytuma is, is the noun. And, and they're both from uh, a word that means to be a citizen. and Or is actually translated citizen. But it, they have to do with the administration of civil affairs. Understanding... The activities of administrating civil affairs in the kingdom of God is different than the activities of administering civil affairs in the kingdoms of the world. And that's why we're not to be looking to that administration of civil affairs. We're to be looking in this other direction. And so what do, how are those activities differing? We find the same word again in, in, uh, other verses as well, uh, we'll find it in Philippians 3.20 uh, with slightly different, uh, where it says, for our conversation, and again, there's that word conversation, polytuma, is in heaven from whence also we looked for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our activities again are going to be, he says, in heaven. And, and the word is... In, uh, you know, it's uh, Oranos in, in the Greek for heaven. But that conversation, and if you were to look that up in, in a concordance and and uh, see how that is defined, the first definition is the administration of civil affairs or of a commonwealth. It refers to the constitution of a commonwealth form of government and the law by which it is administered, the state or commonwealth. That's That's the definition of the word, and he's saying... He is saying that our administration of civil affairs is in heaven. It's not in Rome. It's not in Washington, D.C. It's not in Sydney, Australia. It's not in London. It's in heaven. So our activities are going to be guided differently. We're not going to be, you know, our daily administration, our daily administration is not going to be dependent upon Rome or Washington or or Toronto, or any of these other uh, civil governments that administer civil affairs through force, fear, and violence, through taxation of our neighbor, through oppressing our neighbor and forcing him to contribute to what we think is a good idea. And it may be a good idea, but it's not a good idea to do through force. If you're electing men to exercise authority one over the other so that you can be benefited, 
you're going against the teachings of Christ. Because he said we were not to be like the men or the governments of the world where the men exercise authority one over the other. We're supposed to be doing it through this other activity of faith, hope, and charity. So the politics of the mind that says that it's okay to use force to obtain the benefits of society puts you at, at enmity with Christ. It makes you opposed to Christ and his way. And, and those benefits that you get, and you may need them to even survive. But it's not seeking the kingdom of God. You have to turn around and start going the other way. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's an, it's Repentance is an ongoing process that changes your mind. It, just like birth is a process. You know, some births, I know, you know, a woman said to her husband, he says, oh, it's time, we're going to have a baby. You know, it's coming. And he went out immediately and he started up the car and he came back in and she was holding the baby. <laughs> she was standing there holding the baby. It was still attached to the cord and everything. I was only out for a couple of minutes. Uh, her labors were very short. Uh, once all of a sudden she was going to have a baby, she was going to have a baby. She had like 12, 13 kids. But it it was, but other women I know, 30 hours, 40 hours and later. <laughs> it's, it's, some women is not so easy. But uh, repentance is a lot the same way. Uh, some people, they repent and boy, they just change overnight. Other people, it's a process. And uh, it takes a while. And Philippians, you know, where we read Philippians 3.20, it says, for our conversation is in heaven. But what does that say in context? Uh, how how would you read the context of that? You know, if you go back up to uh, verse 15, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. In other words, what I'm doing now is I'm revealing the fact that your systems of social welfare that operate through force and violence, through compelled offerings, are actually contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ, contrary to the teachings of Moses, if you're a Jew, if, if you're a Muslim, contrary to the teachings of Moses. You cannot be forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. That is coveting your neighbor's goods. That's violation of the Ten Commandments. And it brings repercussions in your life and in your society in general. According to Polybius, who was neither Christian nor Jew, it degenerates the people to depend upon forcing your neighbor for the benefits of society. It degenerates society. And makes them fit. For the first tyrant that comes along. You will be setting yourself up. For a tyrant. For a despot. For somebody to rule over you. If you go that way. So now if you want your power back. That choice of power back. Then you have to go the other way. And that going the other way is a process. And Christ tells you what to do. Moses tells you what to do. But neither Christian or Jew are doing it today, generally speaking. And one of those things was to sit down in the tens. In other words, you gather in small congregations and then those small congregations gather in congregations of congregations 
And just as you're supposed to love your neighbor in your local congregation, those small gatherings of congregations of congregations are to love the next congregation. And then those congregations of congregations gather in a larger and larger uh, circle of congregations. And they have to love those larger and larger ones as much as they love their own neighbor. And so this begins to spread from community to community, from nation to nation in this network of charity. And this basic fundamental principle of living by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence is the common denominator because it is the the fundamental teachings of Jesus Christ, fundamental teachings of Moses, the fundamental teaching of Abraham to create these living altars of uh men who facilitate that daily ministration of charity, taking care of all the social welfare needs of a peculiar people who gather together in the name and character of Christ. Because they will be anointed. They will be born again. They will be changed if they go that route, if they go that way. So let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. So we're now revealing that you can't go the way of socialism and still be a Christian. It's it's just, it's incompatible. He goes on in uh, verse 16, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk, By the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk as ye have us for an ensample. Now this mark them which walk. This walk is what we're supposed to be doing is what the half shekel was all about. I I expanded the page on on the half shekel on our preparing you site to give you a little bit more explanation of where it talks about there was this half shekel collected from everybody in Israel. It was like a head tax. It was the only really compelled tax and it really wasn't a compelled tax. It was a required tax, but it wasn't a compelled tax because if you didn't pay it, you didn't have to pay it. But if you didn't pay it, you were not a part of the the assembly. You were not marked as part of the assembly. Because it was a free assembly anyway. So it wasn't like you became a member. But you wouldn't be marked as being a part of the assembly if you did not pay that half shekel. Which is like, you know, less than a dime. That was your annual yearly heads up tax. That saying that I'm, I'm still participating. Because, see, the rest of the offerings that you gave were free will offerings. And they were given to the Levite of your choice. And you might choose one Levite one day and another Levite the next day. And so there, there we didn't need all the accountants and scribes and everything to keep track of everything. Because of the fact that people knew you. They knew what you were doing. Now, obviously, you didn't change your Levite every day. <laughs> but from one day to the next, you you find him doing something that you did not think it was of service and not think was right. And you had the power to choose to say, I'm not giving to you anymore. 
I'm going to give to Steve over here because I think he's doing a better job. And I'm going to join that congregation that gives to Steve. We're going to become the altars of clay around that altar of stone. That stone of the altar. That Steve is a stone of the altar. And he gathers together with, you know, Bob and Phil and Petey. And together, ten of them make an altar. They are living stones of the altar. And that's part of the network. And that's the way it worked. Now, imagine this as your political system. Your political governmental system where the power is back in your hands. The power of choice is back in your hands. You don't have any power over the choice of your neighbor. But you have the power over your choices. Now, you have to come together in virtue and care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Or you'll have 144,000 denominations. Because Christ came to serve. He came because he cared. They came to sacrifice himself that you might be saved. You need to gather with that same spirit. Or otherwise, you're not coming in the name of Christ. You're coming in the name of Steve or Bob or or Paul or uh, or whoever. You're supposed to be coming together in the name of Christ, the character of Christ. So in verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. If you think it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods, as long as you do it through government, guess what? That would make you an enemy of the cross. Because the cross said that wasn't good. That is not what you're supposed to be doing. That word enemy there, ekthros, it's it's translated enemy most of the time. Occasionally it's translated foe. It's defined as hated, odious, hateful, hostile, hating, or opposing another. If you're opposing the ways of Christ, which are based on faith, hope, and charity, and saying, well, I want faith, hope, and charity on Sunday, but the rest of the week I'm going to force my neighbor to provide for my welfare. How can you find that compatible with Christ? It's not compatible with Christ. It's not walking in the ways of Christ. You can imagine you're born again, but if you haven't got that, then you need more revealed to you. You, You're in need of repentance. So verse 19 goes on to say, Whose end is destruction? Whose God is their belly? You know, what they want, what they're hungry for. And whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And this is where he goes into saying, for our conversation, our management of civil affairs is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're seeking his ways. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus anointed. We're looking for his anointing in our hearts and in our minds to show us who we should give to, how much we should give, and when we should give. And if you're not seeking that kind of kingdom, government, politics, then you're not really seeking the kingdom of God. 
And I admit wholeheartedly that this is a process. But it's a process that is manifested in your coming together. Which is why Christ commanded that his apostles make the people sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Because there was 5,000 there that day. In order to begin the flow of bread and fish and food and supplies to the needy of their society. So that everybody would have something to eat. And there was actually a surplus left over so that the apostles could eat. The Levites could eat of the offering. They were allowed to eat of the offering. If you go back to Mark where it was talking about this. The apostles were saying there's not enough food. We have to go send these people away that we have to go and get some food. Uh, you know, because we need to eat. These are the ministers of the kingdom. His disciples are the trainee ministers of the kingdom. But there's enough food for them. And he says, so what have you got? You know, you're telling me that 5,000 people are out there with only a few loaves and fishes? No. The apostles only had a few loaves and fishes. Was it going to be enough for the apostles who were disciples at that time? And he says, who's got something? One person had a few loaves and fishes. And he said, okay, bring them. And they brought them and he took them and he gave them away to other people. Here he had been talking all day. He had been going without. The apostles were going out. They took up what they had and they gave it away so they had nothing left. And suddenly they had more. Everybody thinks the miracle is is that all the bread and fishes just suddenly appeared. And maybe that is a miracle. But, you know, it's a miracle if people start to share. Maybe all those people did have food, but they weren't sharing. We know this for some reason, and it appears in more than one place, that they sat down when they were told, when the apostles went out to make these 5,000 people sit down in the tens. And then link those tens together into hundreds. And then link those hundreds together into 50 groups. So there was 50 groups of hundreds, which uh, makes 5,000. And they're not sitting down, you know, they're not counting all the little kids. They're counting the families. This is the way they did it. And so there were 5,000 families there that were represented there. There were probably more than 5,000 people. But they had enough for everybody. And of course, now they have to distribute that amongst the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And those who are in charge of distribu- distributing it are the ordained ministers of Christ, the Levites, as you would. And they can eat of that. So now there was stuff left over for the apostles to eat. And that's very important. And so that, but they told them to sit down upon the green grass, which normally the grass is green in the spring. Although I've, I live in the desert and I have seen all the grass. The hills would look like Ireland once in October. And it was because we had lots and lots of rains in the fall, early in the fall with enough warm weather to sprout and the hills all became green like it was spring, but it was in the fall. But anyway, so but we can guess that it was the early spring festival that the people were gathering in because the Feast of Tabernacles is usually in the fall. But anyway, the uh, we're having a feast here in Summer Lake out here on the high desert, which is the Burning Bush Festival. 
And everybody's welcome to come. We've had people say, oh, no, we should only invite people who are in congregations. But that's not what the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booze was all about. You were supposed to invite all the people round about. So everybody can come to this. But it's a potlatch, as the Indians would call it. Potluck, as we call it today. Uh, there are actually some people call them Jacob's Supper or Jacob's Join. Uh, you're supposed to bring your own food. And you're also supposed to bring enough food so that you have something to share. So that when you go away, that the Levites don't go away empty-handed. The first time we had this festival here, when the Burning Bush Festival, the first time we had the gathering, we did it all by the Jewish calendar, but that's not the significant thing. It's coming up here in August 31st this year, and it's the regular holiday weekend so that people can come and stay till Monday. And so if you want to come, just... Look up BurningBushFestival.org. Go to Preparing You site. Look up Festival. But the idea is is that it's a way of connecting. And everybody can't come from all across. So we've had people from as far away as Australia. We have some people from South Africa that not want to come now. But they probably won't make it this year. But uh, we could, we're, we're now going to be able to build this up. And we'll have uh, bigger and bigger areas to do this. But it will require that you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to facilitate this in a biblical way, in a biblical fashion, according to the the words of Christ. But when I say uh, potluck, potlatch, everybody's supposed to bring food, and so that's going to take coordination, and and it's going to take that coordination will go by way of the channels and avenues and way of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And although these are usually pretty small gatherings here, there's no reason why we can't have 5,000. We have room for 5,000 people to gather, uh, but they have to start gathering in the ways of Christ. So that's one of the activities of Israel, and that's one of the reasons why they had the festivals. It wasn't, God didn't need you to have a party. Uh, but you needed to gather together in order to cement those relationships because if you have, you know, you have a congregation of 10 people, they, they may all live real close to each other, although in most of our congregations they're pretty spread out because the people haven't really started waking up yet. Actually, I do see people waking up, but they're not really gathering in large numbers with us yet, but that could change overnight. And it certainly changed overnight with Christ. I mean, Pentecost, one day there really isn't hardly anybody and the kingdom's all in disarray and supposedly Christ is was crucified 50 days before and then he comes back and everybody is renewed with the power of the Holy Spirit and then Pentecost comes 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection and thousands opt out of one system into another system. They opt out of one activity of politics that's based on forced fear and entitlements and free, uh, forced offerings. And they opt into a system that is based on free will offerings. And now the power of choice has moved from the state of the Pharisees to the people. It's The power has moved back. Back to that definition of politics that we just found on, on Google. That power moved back to the people. 
But with that power came the responsibility that moved back to the people. And so they had to start taking care of one another. And, and we see them doing that. Where people, you know, they had extra. They they sold it or gave it to the apostles. And the apostles rightly divided the bread from house to house. That's what it's telling you there. They didn't. They didn't all join Christianity and say, oh, we're born again. And then go back to Rome and said, oh, yeah, and we need some bread over here. So we're going to go to Rome and Caesar and get free bread and food stamps and welfare and social security. They weren't going to do that. But Jesus spent years organizing the people and teaching them this other way, this other set of activities. And the people had started doing it. But now they had to do it in earnest. Because if you got the baptism, when you got the baptism of John the Baptist, you were on your road to repentance and seeking another way. You were you were cleaning up your act. But when you got the baptism of Jesus Christ at that particular point, you were cast out of the other system. You, this was exodus for all these people who got the baptism at Pentecost. They were leaving one system. One conversation and moving into another conversation, which brings us to the fourth item in this definition, which we will talk about when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. But think about this. This is another form of government that they were entering into by baptism. This was life-changing in more ways. But not only was it life-changing, but it changed your mind. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, uh, the fourth part of that definition is an example of uh, the word, use of the word politics. And it says, the president's relationship with Congress is vital to American politics. And the reality is, is that uh, relationship is a vital with every government. But the relationship of the president and Congress and the relationship between the people and Congress and the president and all these relationships are based on the laws of contract. And you have to become numbered amongst them in order to obtain their benefits. Again, let's go back to that Constitution. The Constitution was uh, created to literally take the place of the Articles of Confederation. It was ratified in not according to the agreement of the Articles of Confederation, which required unanimous consent. They implemented it before they had unanimous consent, but that eventually they did get unanimous consent under the coercion of, uh, you know, like uh, not letting uh, Rhode Island trade across their borders. <laughs> so they eventually conceded. But the reality is, is the Constitution was put into place without putting it to a vote of the people. It was not the result of the democratic consent of the people, but it was a creation of the states. And according to Clark Summary of U.S. American Law, even after the Constitution was ratified, the states were as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada. They were separate nations, and they were gathered under this corporate agreement of the United States Constitution. Now, things have changed. And with that, our minds have changed. Uh, the the relationship between the states, they are not as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada anymore. They are 
they have an allegiance to the United States. This all took place during the Civil War. Uh, we were not a party to the Constitution that's ruled by the Supreme Court, but now we are parties to the United States federal government. We're not citizens of the individual states anymore. We're citizens of the United States and only residents of the individual states. So all these things are about the relationship of the people that has changed. But we're not talking about government as much as the government of the mind, the politics of the mind, how we accept ideas and those ideas that we accept begin to change our mind and change our actual being, change the nature of our relationship with the next step. These are steps. We move in this direction towards Rome towards centralized government, dependence upon centralized government, or we move back towards individual freedom. Uh, and uh, individual freedom is found under God because we, dev- uh, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. So this freedom is under God, and God is dictating to the individual what he should do, but the individual is not dictating to his neighbor what he should do. Now, there, a conflict can come about when you begin to infringe upon your neighbor rights, but that's another subject. The reality is, in the natural state, man has rights. And in a corporate state, man waives a portion of his rights to enter that corporation and to become a beneficiary of that corporation. But in the corporation of God, you are a beneficiary by charity. And so, you know, amongst conservatives in America, we find a certain desire to move back towards those individual freedoms of that state of individual freedom. But how desirous of that freedom are they? Are they willing to waive their rights to entitlements, their privileges of entitlements? And if they do waive their right to those entitlements, what do they have that fulfills that gap in their life? You know, if they waive the right to their Social Security, what will they put in the place of Social Security? How will they deal with the needs that come up? Well, this is what the kingdom of God was all about. This is what the gospel was all about, telling you how to provide for those needs without taking away the rights of your neighbor, without coveting that which belongs to your neighbor. You can desire your neighbor to give to you. You can desire your neighbor to help you. But you don't force your neighbor to help you. Uh, and so therefore you, that would be a covetous practice to, you know, to have this one purse. The Bible talks about one purse in Proverbs. And we have articles up on all these, these key words. You can go to preparing you and, and search and you can find these, uh, these articles that go through and state detail by detail and show you what they were really doing. And, and I, I've, talked about and I'm going to be talking in the future and and sharing uh, quotes from other people who are contemplating these same issues. What alternative to the present state of governance, authoritarian governance that we have in the world today in all countries, what could supplant that? What could replace that? What could be our alternative? And people are looking at this, but they don't really see uh, many of them are non-religious. Uh, many of them don't want to, they, they really don't want to have anything to do with the religion because they don't know how to define religion. 
They know what the definition is today, and just as we just looked at this definition of politics, if you look up the definition of religion today, is religion is defined as what you think about a supreme being. But religion was defined 200 years ago as the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. It's It's the performance of a duty. That's what religion was. And that duty was to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love God, which is a giver of life. So love being a giver of life rather than one that takes life away. And love your neighbor as yourself. And that those two simple things are absolutely essential in a free government. Because those are based on virtue. But in order to see that, you need humility. You need to have a humble heart. And you also may need someone to facilitate that on a larger basis because you can't know 5,000 people. You can, you can know 10 people intimately. So this is why you gather in tens. And then those tens gather with 10 other, or 9 other groups of 10. So then you gather in hundreds, ranks of 100. But who connects those 100? It's, you, you pick a minister and he is, he gathers in a group of ten ministers, each one serving ten families. These, these ministers, if they're going to meet the qualification of Christ, they have to not be of the world. You can still be of the world. Temporarily, as you go through this process of repentance. But the ordained ministers of Christ's government, they can't be of the world. They have to be separate from the world. And this is the fellowship of the saints. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 8.4. He says, Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Those saints are different than the congregation, than the fellowship. In Ephesians 2.19 we see, Now, therefore, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, that polytume again, with the saints, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. But they're fellow citizens through faith, hope and charity, free will offerings, burnt offerings given up entirely and redistributed by the saints from house to house. But what is this saint? So when we see now, there's another activity of the mind. I say the word saints and you think, you know, Catholic Church, Saint so-and-so and Saint Maria and Saint Joseph and Saint. No. The, that word saints is, you know, talk, one way of looking at it is the word holy. If you go back to the Old Testament, the word is Kodesh, which is translated holy 262 times. So you say holy. And so I say the word holy and your brain has an activity where you think, oh, this person is holy. But the same word is also translated sanctuary. It's also translated hallowed. Uh, It has to do with being separate, consecrated, dedicated. Holy ground. Again, the temples were not buildings originally. They were areas. And you would go to that area and you'd make your offering. They had altars. You might pile up stones and then... You give your offering over that table stone, that footstool of God. 
you get, and, and when you goes crosses over that table, it goes into the hands of the guy on the other side of the table. And what's he supposed to do with it? He's supposed to rightly divide it from house to house. And you get to choose which guy and you get to watch what he does with what you give him. And so you become the governor of your government because you decide who to give to. Now, imagine a government that operates that way with free will offerings. There was no taxation other than that half shekel. And even that, if you didn't want to pay it, you didn't have to pay it. But you were not marked. There was no memorial of you being a part of the system. And the system was a a system of free assemblies of tens, hundreds, and thousands. So that you were taking care of one another in times of peace. Helping one another. and, And you had also, you took care of people who were not a part of the system. Your neighbors round about you. That was the the red heifer. That's what it was. It wasn't a cow. It wasn't red. It was people. It was foreign aid to the people not marked as a part of the system because they of this network of charity, this kingdom of God. So, what happens if they're suddenly attacked? What happens if they're suddenly like we see in uh, in Acts where? Uh, the Christians were cast out. The Jewish Christians in Rome were cast out of Rome. They had to leave. 14,000 families had to leave overnight almost out of Rome. They were no longer welcome there under Claudius. And they had to leave, which is why we have the letters to the Romans, because the Jews were all gone. But the Romans who had become followers of Christ... They didn't have to leave. So they were still in Rome and they were saying, well, how do we organize? We're not really Jewish and do we have to do, you know, go and do all the rituals that a lot of the Jews were doing? No, Paul's telling them what the essential thing is. That, you know, I should not be regulating, you know, what days you gather on and and what you give and what you don't give and, you know, how you operate on these insignificant levels. I'm just saying you have to love one another. You have to take care of one another. You have to have the activities of the early church where that provided all the social welfare for the people. Well the the group of that we call called out Ecclesia Church, they're separate. They can't be of the world. And you will become less and less dependent upon the world for your benefits, and more and more dependent upon the church and your family and your community. And this causes your focus to change. Now, you can't lose sight of the fact that it's a kingdom. It's not just a congregation. And that's what a lot of the home churches do now, is they just want their little congregation and their little fellowship. But it says in Ephesians 2.19, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The household of God is not just a lone congregation. It's congregations of congregations of congregations. It's wheels. It's circles within circles within circles. If you catch the drift of that <laughs> prophecy. Revel- it says, You're supposed to be the temple of God. 
You want to see the second coming? Rebuild that temple, that living temple of God, according to the ways of God. When they when they came out of captivity one time, they, they were going to build the temple according to the original way, which was a living temple. But some wanted to build it out of stone and and wood. And the old men wept because they said, the people are doing it again. And we still see the Christians out there all wanting to build a temple over there in Jerusalem so that there'd be the second coming. You're the stones of the temple. And there are temples, there are uh, altars of stone and altars of clay. And every family is an altar of clay. And every family in a free gathering is a, is an altar of clay. Every free gathering, free assembly is an altar of clay. Cause you come, you go. You're not baked together. You're, you're, uh, Altars of Adama. That's what you are. Altars of men. In families. The family is the corporation of God. But God, Moses, Jesus called men out to be the saints. To be separate. To be in the world but not of the world. To be the government of God but not the rulers over the people. But the actual thing that you keep talking about in your governance. Public servants. But they are servants. If your public servants force the contributions of the people, they aren't servants. They are masters. If you want a government of servants, you have to create that out of love for one another. All these, we see all these liberals starting this walk away movement where they're walking away. Well, many of them are not going to walk away because they're, they're in love with that system of force. And you hear it in their voice. Anger and voice and outrage and triggered. But there are some that actually are socialists because they have a compassion for one another. They they don't really understand the repercussions of a socialist state. That's a different thing. You know, where you it's one thing when you if you want to share, but if you want to have the power to force people to share, now you're going to get into the identity politics that will bring about more Holocaust, which we've seen in the Soviet Union and and, uh, and uh, China and all these places where millions of people die. Somebody was saying, "Oh, that you know, this is all propaganda that uh, that uh, these these leaders of the Soviet Union didn't kill all these people." Well, you know, if you go drive the road of bones. <laughs> You, you will still see bones coming up out of the road. That's why they call it the road of bones. Because people died building it. And they were, their bodies were, they did, the ground was frozen. So they were just turned into the road. And so the bones still pop up to this very day. So somebody died, you know. But this is the delusion. And it takes a humble heart to start to realize that somebody has taken over the politics of your mind and led you down the wrong path, the wrong way. And some of you, your hearts are waking up and saying, we need to do something different. Well, what you need to do is see something different and see what Christ was talking about that is different than what many modern Christians are teaching. If uh, if you look at uh, James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Goes down into verse 10 and says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So this, when you go 
to go full circle here, to go back into your prayer closet where you med- meditate upon the righteousness of God. That has to be a humble meditation where you say, I don't know the answer. And I'm not really giving you the answer because the answer isn't found in words. It's not found in intellectual arguments. It's found in your heart. And your heart will conduct the truth into your mind where you will see it. You know, I can't give you the truth. I can talk about the truth. But for you to receive the truth, you need that humble heart where you get the sight of the Lord, the insight of the Lord. First Peter 5.5 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Now, he's not saying to exercise authority one over the other. He's talking about being clothed in this humility where everyone you talk to and listen to, you listen to, you try to hear their heart. You try to hear what they're saying. You you give them the benefit of the doubt that there is some truth in what they are saying and you're trying to hear what they have to offer. It may not be very much truth. It may not be very much they have to offer. But seek what they have to offer. Come to agreement with one another in what righteousness that you can share amongst one another. Because a lot of people, they they can't see the complexities of the kingdom. But they can see the simplicities of love and care for one another. And again, it says, you know, Peter says that too. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. In uh, Peter 5, 6, the very next verse, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Again, in due time, because it's a process. So, yeah, you can't just suddenly leave one system and go into the other, although that that opportunity may present itself in time, because the system may literally collapse. And, of course, we see Pentecost where thousands and thousands of people were no longer going to take benefits from the temple by way of the Pharisees who forced the contributions of the people through this social welfare scheme set up by Herod and the Pharisees. But they they were now kicked out of that system because they got the baptism of Jesus Christ. And they had to enter in this system. And that was at this feast uh, of Pentecost in the spring where the people had to organize themselves immediately into the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because there was 2,000 one day, 3,000 the next. And we're talking whole families, 2,000 families, 3,000 families. There's your 5,000 families organized in the tens, hundreds, and 50 one-hundreds, which is 5,000 families, which may be, you know, um, 15, 20, 30,000 people counting the children. We're now in another system where they had to rightly divide the bread from house to house. And that bread was provided by the people who donated to those ministers of God according to their service. Because we know right away there were some ministers who were trying to become ministers of God who were not good men, who were selfish men. Ananias, I, I, I think that Ananias may have been the Ananias who also was the father-in-law to uh, Caiaphas. But I can't prove it. 
I haven't been able to prove that. I've I've looked and looked, but God has not given me the answers. But it certainly in spirit he was. And so he wanted to become a part of the church so he could receive these offerings and become wealthy like he was before. But he wasn't being honest. But Barnabas, who was known as Hoses before, who was a Levite, sold all the, his wealth and entered into this status as a minister of the church appointed by Christ. So that, and he did rightly divide the bread from house to house, and he went with Paul to take funds around the kingdom where they were needed. Because they weren't just local congregations, this was a system of self-government, and their activities, we see their activities of taking care of one another, because there were these difficult times. That was a part of the process too, so that when the day finally came, where Jerusalem was about to be destroyed, the people could literally leave behind all their wealth, their clothes, their jewels, their money, their house, everything, and go out. And there was a network of people to accept them in that day of calamity. We shall have days of calamity. So start gathering. Join us on the network. And uh, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Until then, peace upon your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.